Meadows today, uh, not only Brother Philip Meadows, but also his wife, Samantha. And uh, the first introduction, I'll, I'll tell you, um, Brother Philip, he, he told me yesterday he was a reluctant academic. So uh, 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 he did pretty good in his reluctance, I will tell you that. But, <laughs> but he, he, uh, I think he got his first degree in uh, biochemistry, wasn't it? Yes. And I can remember when you were here before, you told me that at least for a while there, you were wanting to pursue something with genetics or, or gene therapy or something like that or something like that. But then he got a degree, I believe, in computer technology or something like that. You know, he's an underachiever. And, and, and uh, then he got some other scattered uh, uh, things here and there. And then he managed to, uh, you know, in, in Texas, universities are gauged by their athletic programs. And so he, he was at a very minor university over in England called Cambridge. And, and uh, he, he received his master's degree, I believe, in theology. And then he went ahead and got his Ph.D., Amen. That's, that's the first introduction. The second introduction is, is when we were at lunch yesterday, we had a conversation. And I was touched by both his wife and Philip, by the burden they have for the church. Uh, their eyes are open to what's going on. And they have a deep desire for the church to become the church. Amen. And uh, so I want to actually introduce to you a, a brother with a burden, okay? And uh, we can forget all the other. Amen. It's a, it's a privilege and a blessing to have them here. And so maybe y'all could welcome Brother Philip. Well, when I was uh, invited to come by the way, you'll be able to tell that I'm not from around here. Um, to, to talk to you, I, I was just, I was uh, elated at the prospect. Um, from the couple of times that I've been before, um, I just felt such a kindred spirit uh, with those who I've met and eaten with, and those that I met and ate with and ate with some more. Um, <laughs> I remember, remembered you all for a long time after I got back. Um, <clears throat> Um, and, and my question was, well, what, what, what should I talk about? And um, how about the nature of um, Christian community? And then I thought, what on earth could I possibly have to teach you or offer you about the nature of Christian community? Um, and then the Lord kind of rebuked me um, and, uh, and gave me, a, gave me a, a scripture this morning, reminded me of a scripture this morning, that a, a wise teacher draws you know, from uh, uh, a storehouse treasures, both old and new. Um, so I really don't think I've got really much um, to teach you that you haven't heard before, except maybe, just maybe, if I say it with a different accent, 
you know, a British accent, um, then it will be heard in a slightly different way. Or maybe my prayer is that Jesus himself will speak. And you will hear a word from him because one word from our king can change everything. Just one. Having said that, I fear I have too many words, but we'll see how we go. <laughs> um, so out of, the, out of that storehouse, which in, to me seems very meager, um, I just want to draw upon um, a couple of little kind of areas of that storehouse. Um, one is from, from the tradition of Wesleyan spirituality. I, it occurred to me that when I was thinking about this, maybe people here who have no idea what I would mean by Wesleyan spirituality. Um, so let me tell you simply, in very simple terms, um, that this is the word Wesleyan there connects, well, I don't know, how am I going to put it to you? You know when St. Paul said, um, imitate me as I imitate Jesus? Well, in my life, I have sought to do that, to imitate Wesley as he imitated Jesus. Well, Paul, and then Jesus, you know. Um, so John Wesley, as many of you will know, was a, the, was a Church of England clergyman whose life spanned pretty much the whole of the 18th century. And he was the founder um, of the early Methodist movement. That, that movement was born um, in the time of uh, what, what more of you might know um, of the, the, the first great awakening, which was a transatlantic phenomenon, outpouring of the Holy Spirit that caught up people in England like Wesley and Whitfield, and Whitfield come, came to America so many times and knew uh, and got alongside Jonathan Edwards and so on, and this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Wesley was in, caught up in the midst of that, and God did something amazing with, with him and through him um, to, to raise up uh, a movement of the Holy Spirit. In, in England. I'm going to come back to that a bit later, but I just wanted to say, just to kind of like ease us into that a little bit, that, that, that Wesley's mission, or rather the, the, the co-mission that Wesley received from the Lord, um, was, to, was to not actually to start another church, but to catalyze a movement of the Spirit within the Church of England to bring renewal and new life uh, within, and not just the Church of England, but to all of those, you know, nominal, dreary Puritans, you know. <laughs> you all have some history there. Um, and others, whoever. This was just a movement that Wesley called was a movement of real scriptural Christianity. So I don't want you to hear some of the things that irritate uh, in me, some of the th things that irritate me when I hear people talking about John Wesley, and it just sounds like a kind of exercise in what I would say call Wesleyolatry. My goal here is not to lift up Wesley, it's to lift up Jesus. But, but we learn, don't we? We sit at the feet of, of fathers and mothers in the faith who helped to lead us there. And that, so that's how I'm approaching 
um, Wesley and that movement. This, and this, the second, if, that, if that's the, the ancient store, the storehouse of ancient things, the storehouse of new things, I guess, would be things that I've learned myself over the last uh, couple of, uh, of decades or more um, as a professor of, uh, of missiology. Um, that's a very fancy way of talking about mission, of not just, not, not the mission of the church, but God's mission. The mission our Lord himself is on in the world. How to have the eyes to see, the ears to hear what he is doing, what he is saying here and now and become a participant with him in his work. And how to read the scripture like that as from Genesis to Revelation, one big story of God's mission from creation to new creation. His purpose is to save a fallen world. And so the comments I make this afternoon, and I want to read um, the kind of wisdom that I myself have gleaned from the Wesleyan tradition within that framework. How, do, how does... How does the Wesleyan spirituality help me and help some of the communities that I'm a part of participate in God's great mission? The scripture that was placed on my heart to share with you and to uh, speak around this afternoon um, comes from Isaiah. I said Isaiah, just in case you're having trouble translating Isaiah, right? I... Um, Isaiah 11, verse 9. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I'm staring at a verse from Habakkuk here, and of course, Prophet Habakkuk says something very similar. You know, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord until as the waters cover the sea. This is this is a, a, a vision that the Lord gave to this prophet and to his prophets um, in, in, in the Old Testament. And, and Isaiah, when he says those words, of course, he's speaking to a people on the, on the verge of exile. They are surrounded by violence, wondering what their future will be will hold, not least because it, it, it seems clear, and not least because the Lord has, be, has revealed that, that they're going to be taken away from their home. And Isaiah's message and this vision that gets planted is that God is still in charge. That history is in his hands and that their hope is only in him. I say only. Wow. He has it. But how? Of course, that scripture uh, begins with the promise of a new king, an anointed king, anointed by the Spirit, one who will set them free from any and all oppression, and in doing that will begin and continue to extend his kingdom around all of the wor world and bring 
peace throughout all the earth. And one day everyone will know, everyone will see, everyone's hearts will be lifted up to him. And every knee will bow to this king. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. God has a mission. And his goal is nothing less than new creation. Later in the book of Isaiah, that, that vision matured and the prophet puts it this way. See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Thanks be to God that this promise has already begun to be fulfilled in Jesus, King Jesus, who came into the world to destroy the power of the devil, the one who from the beginning has sought to destroy God's good work. And not just with Adam, but of course that sin, that that capitulation to evil that, that brought uh, brokenness into his good creation that spread like a virus. It's a bit of an apropos image these days, right? Around the whole of creation, breaking relationships, human to human and human with creation, and everything gets broken and needs healing, but God is going to heal it all. And he sends this new and very different kind of king with a very different kind of strategy to defeat all the powers of darkness and sin and death. This Jesus outwitted them in his incarnation, born in a barn under their very noses. This Jesus overcame them in his life and ministry. Every time he healed the sick, he cast out demons, he gave sight to the blind. Slowly but surely, he is pushing back the frontiers of darkness and bringing in the kingdom of God, even to raising the dead. He disarmed them in his death and resurrection on the cross. Just when those principalities and powers had done their absolute worst, right? Just when they think they have the victory in nailing the Son of God to the cross, burying him in a tomb, the Father speaks his word and breathes his spirit and says, no, you will not have the Son of my love and lifts him out of the grave 
We have a God who raises the dead, for whom nothing is impossible. He made a fool of those powers on the cross. And he will conquer them all when he returns. And everything finally is put under the feet of Jesus. And then in the end of the story, right, we have those echoes of Isaiah in the book of Revelation, John's vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. That always kind of makes me sad, I have to admit. I like the seaside. I come from an island, you know. No more sea. No more chaos. No more, no, nowhere left for evil to hide. No more Leviathan stalking in the deep, trying to outwit God's purposes and his people. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. This is the mission of God. He knows what he is doing. no matter how it may seem in the world, he knows what he is doing, and he reigns over all. One of the things I like to ask my students sometimes is, so you have this picture of, uh, and the direction of, of, of God's mission in the world. How likely do you think it is that he could pull this off? I like to ask them that. It's a difficult question to answer because there's no good answer except one, of course. But I like to play with it anyway. How likely do you think it is? Uh, well, you know, it's not just possible. God could do it because he is God, right? He could do anything. Just one word from him. It's not just possible. It's not even just probable. On balance, the way things are going, he needs to get a move on. Right? Not even just probable. It is inevitable. The, he will return. He will finish what he started. And I know that because I stood it at Cambridge Theology. And, uh, no. I... I know that because the Bible tells me so. I know that because the end has already begun. When, the, when God raised Jesus from the dead, he is the first fruits of that new creation. He is the new creation. And all those who are in him, new creation, 
this is at the heart of what it means to be the people of God. We are the new creation in the midst of the old, bearing witness to what God is doing. And the world better watch and learn because this mission of God is unstoppable. In the meantime, we have Jesus who is not merely raised, but ascended and sits at the right hand, your right, my right, of the Father. And I just was reminded recently, reading the, the, the text of the Ascension in Luke Acts, how Jesus, he stretched out his hands over the, the, the disciples as he disappears into the cloud, you know, stretches them out like the great high priest that he is and pronounces his blessing on them with nail-pierced hands. And from that place, of course, at the right hand of the Father, he pours out his spirit upon the church, his church, his people, his disciples, so that they and we can share in the same power of new creation the same work of Jesus because the same spirit that filled and empowered and moved Jesus in his mission now fills and transforms and empowers us in ours as we join with him. I'm a bit slow, actually. I'm really just a simple evangelist and that's it. Um, but it took me ages to see the connection between the, the life of Jesus and the person and the work of the Holy Spirit all through Jesus' life. So intimately connected, right? You already know this, but I'm going to remind you anyway. You know, the Spirit is there as Jesus is conceived in Mary's womb. The Spirit is there forming him and bringing him to birth. The Spirit is there when he, when he submits himself for baptism and rises out of the water and the Spirit descends upon him like a dove and the Father says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Well, you know, the Spirit is with him. And then the same Spirit takes him into the wilderness and by the same power of the Spirit, he faces down the temptations of the enemy. And we are told he comes out of the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit and then ends up in the synagogue in Nazareth and reads those words, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, this King that Isaiah had prophesied about. And from there... We're told he went around doing all kinds of good, performing signs and wonders by the power of the Holy Spirit that is in him. And then he is raised from the dead and ascended all in the power of the Holy Spirit. Then what does he do? He pours out that same Spirit on you and I, on his church, on his people. Maybe Jesus wasn't kidding. I don't think he ever was kidding. But, you know, a figure of speech. 
when he said, you will do the things that I have been doing. And even greater things will you do. All we need is the presence of Jesus and the fullness of his spirit. And his people, like his mission, is unstoppable. And the book of Acts tells us this story, you know, how that looked in the early church as the community of disciples on mission with God. I love it the way that Luke starts the book of Acts, right? He, he starts it by saying, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and say. That's the bit I, I've grown to love. The stuff that Jesus began to do and say. The implication, of course, being, now I'm going to tell you about all that he is continuing to do and say among his people. Because this Jesus may be ascended, but he is not gone. He is present in power with his people and gifts us his spirit so we can be bound to him and join him in doing the things that he is always doing. Even in a world like ours. In the book of Acts, we have that picture of a church that gathers and scatters, comes together, gathered by Jesus and then sent out by Jesus to proclaim the gospel, to bear witness to the kingdom, gathered out of the world as a community of the kingdom and scattered into the world as a witness to the king. in their homes, down their streets, in their marketplaces, wherever they are. One biblical scholar said, you know, they just talked about Jesus all the time with everybody. They gossiped the gospel. It's the only kind of gossiping that's good. I'm telling you. They gossiped about Jesus. The gospel was spread by these spirit-filled disciples reproducing themselves, the, the reproducing uh, disciples, making more disciples, again gathering and scattering and multiplying. Haven't you heard again of what the Lord is doing with the gathering and scattering in your in what he's doing with this movement of people here all around the world? Is he not already starting to fill the earth Amen. as the waters cover the sea? But this isn't this. This is not a new commission that we have. It's an ancient one that actually began with Adam and Eve in the garden made in the image of God to be image bearers of the king. To go forth and multiply and fill the earth with the presence of the king. And so Jesus restarts this, doesn't he? He calls his disciples to be with him to do what? In order to send them out, it says in the Gospel of Mark. And in Matthew uh, 28, he arranged to meet them up that mountain 
To do what? To commission them to go and make disciples. Go forth and multiply and fill the earth. And by the way, I will be with you always. Actually, he doesn't say that. It's better than that. He says, I am with you. Oh, hear that? I am with you always. I used to think that, you know, I, I, I used to think I was doing ministry for Jesus until I really learned that I was being called to do ministry with Jesus, with him. It's always his ministry, always his presence, always his power. It's always about him, never about me or us, except as he gathers us to himself. Or we could go to the end of John's gospel, right, where Jesus gathers those disciples in that upper room and breathes the Holy Spirit. They're gathered there, fearful for their lives behind locked doors. Jesus hates locked doors. Especially if those locked doors are locking his witness in. But isn't that the grand strategy of the enemy to crush the witness of Jesus' people throughout the ages is to paralyze them out of fear for what, what's beyond, you know, the doors. What's beyond this ranch. But he, he sends them out. Peace be with you. Fear not. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Sent to be witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Can you hear Isaiah? Can you hear Habakkuk? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's going to be. And the amazing, wonderful, exciting things that we are caught up in that. What a privilege to be caught up in that. I've tried to get things in the right order. I've tried to hold Jesus before you. So John Wesley. <laughs> John Wesley loved that text from Isaiah. And he wrote um, a, a sermon, a very influential sermon that, that I've puzzled over um, a lot of my life called The General Spread of the Gospel. And in this sermon, he, he makes three points. First, he affirms that God is still working out his purpose, even in the 18th century. What you saw in Acts is now beginning to happen. He sees it in the midst of this great revival that he is a part of. And what's more, God is working in the same way that he was back then. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he, ha he says these words, in general, it seems the kingdom of God will silently increase wherever it is set up and spread from heart to heart and house to house and town to town and nation to nation. Second, he describes 
the remarkable providence of God in raising up that early Methodist movement in similar terms. He remembers, he reflects how that whole movement just started with a very small handful of young men at Oxford University, actually. Pains me to say it, but you know. Um, they were gathered in a, in a study room in Oxford University and they called, they called this gathering the Holy Club. You can imagine how well that went down with their fellow students, right? The Holy Club. And you're not in it, you know. And then members of this Holy Club, one by one, began having their hearts strangely warmed, baptized in the Holy Spirit. And from gathering inside this holy club, they were sent out to bear witness in the world. And so Wesley records how from that small mustard seed beginning, the kingdom spread throughout England, Scotland, Ireland, America, Canada, and then through Europe, and the rest of the world. Early Methodism was just another way that Jesus was making disciples, bringing people to himself and helping them bear witness. I wish I could say it was still true of the Methodists. Maybe I'll come back to that. But whenever the the fire waxed cold in the early Methodist movement. Jesus was ready to start up another new, one, new movement. That Wesleyan spirituality became the holiness movement and the Pentecostal movement, some aspects of that. Third, Wesley asked an important question for world mission. He said, he asked, What is the grand stumbling block, the stumbling stone to the general spread of the gospel? That's the title of this sermon. What what is it that most gets in the way of the gospel being spread to the ends of the earth? It's a great question, an important question that, that all good missiologists need to wrestle with. What gets in the way? I don't, he wasn't asking this question because he had somehow lost confidence in the power of the gospel, because he was watching hundreds and thousands of lives sometimes being changed on a daily basis. He's in the midst of revival. He knows the power. He's not asking because he's lost confidence in the power of the gospel, nor is he asking what sort of methodology should we use? What methods are going to get this job done? Because frankly, they just, like the early Christians, proclaimed the gospel wherever they were. Always, with all people. Famously, if you ever see pictures of early Methodism, you know, you will see Wesley perhaps stood in the middle of a graveyard proclaiming new creation. Isn't that a picture? Stood in the middle of the dead proclaiming the gospel of life. Wake up, people. Wake up. He has confidence in the gospel. His answer is actually really simple. What is the thing that gets in the way, the grand stumbling block to the general spread of the gospel 
His answer is simple and yet profoundly challenging. At least it challenges me. The grand stumbling block to the general spread of the gospel is the lives of Christians. The lives of Christians. Not all Christians, but in his time, seemingly, the vast majority in the churches, you know, amongst whom he was witness. It's the church is the problem. What's he getting at? He could be getting at a lot of things, but let me briefly say, he's getting at a failure of holiness. And by holiness, he doesn't just, he doesn't just mean being morally good. He is not a legalist. Yes, be morally good. <laughs> or let me put it better, become like Jesus. But you can do all of that and just be a formalist, just going through the motions all the same. The world has tried to be morally good and, of course, fails precisely because it doesn't know Jesus, the one from whom all of that is possible. Rather, he is talking about the possibility that we have, quotes Timothy here, you know, um, the problem is when we end up with the form of religion but lacking the power thereof. That's the problem. It's not even just hypocrisy, doing one, saying one thing and doing another. It's a lack of power. It's power failure in the church. And what is that power? Of course, it's the power of the Spirit. And how does he prefer to name that? Well, the way that the Scriptures are the spirit of love. It is about being filled and transformed and overflowing with the spirit of the great commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. This is what holiness is for Wesley. A failure of holiness and a failure of zeal. Where, where is the passion for Jesus and for his kingdom in the church? Because this spirit of love is not, this is not just romanticism. This is fire. It's not enough to say that God loves us. He zealously loves us. Same root as jealously loves us. It was zealous love <laughs> that sent his son to die. It was zealous love that poured out his spirit into imperfect vessels like you and I. It's zealous love. His heart burns for us, for his people, and for the whole world. Do our hearts burn with his fire for our own lives, for those of our, in our communities, but for the whole world to know? Because one day it will. But ultimately, 
It is a failure of community. A failure in community. Wesley was planting these communities around the place of holiness and real discipleship. And of course, the church authorities of his time wrote him and said, cease and desist. Stop it. You're causing schism, you know, in the life of the church. And Wesley's response was not altogether polite. Um, But he said, what's the effect of, you have no idea what you are talking about. We are creating community where it has never really existed. Your parishioners, and he uses this, this, if you can picture this mental image, he says, your parishioners are nothing but a rope of sand. A rope of sand. Can you picture that? You know, I, I don't know if you've been to the beach you know, and seen, or seen sand sculptures. You know, picture a rope of sand. Something that appears to be something that it's not. Just because you've got a bunch of people that show up at the same time in the same place for some liturgy or other does not the church of God make. It is an illusion. And what is more, it's just an illusion of a bunch of individual particles arranged in a certain way that come the first wind or, or lap of the ocean will just be, you know, destroyed. Our people have real spiritual connection gathered by Jesus and the power of his spirit and share life deeply with each other. Wesleyan community, the communities that Wesley started were designed to overcome all of those failures. Communities that are gathered and scattered, gathered to help one another pursue holiness of heart and life, to help one another fan into flame the love for God and neighbor that the Lord desires. And the Wesleyan community scattered into the world to live as whole life disciples wherever they were, whatever their employment was, no matter who they are surrounded by, to bear witness to the presence and power of God in their everyday lives so that the flame of love could spread from heart to heart and life to life and house to house and nation to nation and so on. Now, if I was in a Methodist church and I've got a slight anxiety in my soul that I'm going on too long, I did warn uh, folk that um, I have the gift of continual utterance. I was told that you all had the gift of continual listening. So I'm going to keep on for a little while longer, just a little while longer. I just want to briefly share with you um, four marks, if you like, of that Wesleyan kind of community that participates in this great mission of God um, through gathering and scattering. 
I want to root that, those marks just in the, very briefly, in the life of Jesus himself, because this is a discipleship issue, um, but are also kind of principles of that kind of organic movement that spreads around the world. The first of those marks is a community that's committed to seeking growth in the love of God. No great commission without a great commandment. I suggest the first thing that we should observe about the life of Jesus was his intimate relationship with the Father. This was not something that he compartmentalized, you know, for this special occasion or that or this worship service or that. He walked with the Father and talked with the Father and was intimate, shared his heart moment by moment and day by day, a conscious, conversational communion with the Father. Now imagine... Imagine being invited to share in that relationship with the Father. This is exactly what Jesus does with his disciples. He draws them into his own relationship with the Father. He reveals to them the Father's heart and ultimately teaches them to pray, right? Our Father. And then, of course, at Pentecost, and for all of us here, he continues to do this through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This relationship with the Father that shaped Jesus' identity as the beloved Son is the same relationship that shapes our identity as followers of Jesus, as children of the living God who are filled with that spirit of adoption that, like Jesus, can cry out, Abba, Father. So that we can know ourselves to be beloved children, so that we can grow up in the likeness of his Son, so that we can sense his will, know his heart, and share his purpose in the world so that we can enter into, with Jesus, a conscious, conversational communion with the living God. This is the great promise of the gospel to us. Wesley believed that Christian community is needed to help us encounter and stay connected to the real presence and power of God with us. Where two or more are gathered, there I am. No, Jesus is here, right? Really present with us. The King is among us. I felt it already this morning in our worship. And he is present as he was with those disciples in that upper room to breathe that spirit among us. To draw us, not just individually, 
but together as a people into the Father's house. They gathered in weekly preaching services, but not just to hear the word, not just to learn some principles, not just to figure out how to apply them in their daily lives, but to hear the word of God as power. To hear a word, they came to hear a word that was not just word, but word and spirit, that when it went forth, when the promises of the gospel went forth, they would have power to change their lives, to renew their lives, to restore their lives, to encourage them, to exhort them, to heal them. They had high expectation that wherever the word was preached, it would be accompanied by signs and wonders because Jesus was with them. They had regular love feasts. Wesley learned about the love feast from the early church. There were times when those, those folks would just gather together and do nothing but bear testimony to the works of God in their lives. I think this is worship. Worship is not just remembering abstract truths about how good God is or singing inspiring songs about his never-ending love and power. It's about experiencing that goodness on Tuesday morning, on Thursday afternoon, every moment of every day. And then when you gather together, you can say, let me tell you what my Lord has done this week. He is with me, just as he was with those first disciples. In fact, better. Worship. They had monthly watch night services. Again, they learned that from the early church. Prayer vigils where they would come to fast and to pray. I've already heard some of that this morning. To fast and pray because they are a people of spiritual warfare. Remember, this is ultimately one of the things that I like to remind my, stu- my students. So, you know, okay, so what did Jesus spend most of his time doing? Apart from walking places. <laughs> In his ministry. Oh, uh, he- healing. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe. But teaching. No. The thing that Jesus does more than anything else is cast out demons. Jesus was an exorcist. That's what he was. Breaking those generational curses, right? And every tie that binds every kind of oppression, not just in our individual lives, but in, among his people. When those little foxes in the vineyard... They will not have their way. And they had annual covenant services where they, that, this was a renewal of a Puritan tradition, actually. But, of course, 
Remember, in the, this story of, of God's relationship with his people, you know, throughout um, history is what can be read as one of covenant renewal, right? When his people broke that covenant or failed in that covenant, they gathered again and again to renew that covenant. And this was a practice that, that Wesley had the people called Methodists do at least annually to come together to pledge allegiance to the king and him alone, to lay down their lives for him and him alone. And this same people gathered in these ways are then scattered into the world. Wesley says this. I love these words. What is it to worship God? It is to love him, to delight in him, to desire him with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. It is to imitate him who we love. It is to go through our outward work with hearts lifted up to him to make our daily employment a sacrifice to God, to buy and sell, to eat and drink all to his glory. This is what it means to worship God. And if there is one thing that, that Wesley wanted for, for, his, uh, for, for his people more than anything else was not that they would be satisfied in the Lord. He prayed that they would know an ever-increasing holy dissatisfaction. <laughs> because when the Spirit comes, He groans. He groans in our hearts. For what? for the new creation. He groans among us. I love, I, I've, what I hear so often I have heard when in worship here um, and when I've listened to you and vocalizing from your heart, um, wordless it seems, groans. I've no idea whether that's what you feel like you're doing. That's what I'm hearing. Not just individuals, but a people groaning for God to finish what he started. For the, for the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the earth, as the waters cover the sea. My next three little marks are shorter, I promise. This is the Englishman in me worrying about what you're not worried about, apparently. <laughs> Second mark. Is a pe they were a people of spiritual discipline. But they took up the spiritual disciplines as means of grace. And, and for Wesley, those were rooted in, of course, the witness of Jesus. Jesus was a man of spiritual discipline, right? He embodied those traditional Jewish practices of prayer, fasting, and giving. He prayed alone, he prayed for others, he prayed with the disciples, he prayed among crowds, he prayed, he was a man of prayer. 
He fasted for the power of the Spirit. He fasted to resist temptation. He fasted to commit his life to the Father and not let anything else distract him. He gave not just or even money, but all of himself. Everything from feeding the hungry to healing the sick. And Jesus expected his disciples to do the same. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. When you pray, when you fast, when you give, not if you pray, if you fast, if you give, but when. And this is the bit, of course, that, that makes a lot of my kind of reformed uh, friends nervous. When you do these things, the Father will reward you. Oh dear, that sounds very meritorious, doesn't it? You know, that sound, isn't that salvation by works or something? I, reward? We do this for a reward? Well, it kind of depends what you think the reward is, I suppose. We don't join with those kind of prosperity gospel preachers that, that think that if they pray hard enough, you know, they can have their second helicopter <laughs> or whatever it is that they pray for. No. Or just pray hard enough and they'll go to heaven. No. The reward is in the prayer itself. Who do we pray? To whom do we pray? Our Father who is in heaven. What is the fruit of it? An intimate relationship with Him. How does it happen? Through the gift of the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts. Here is the reward. There is no salvation without it. Wesley believed that Christian community must be shaped by these same spiritual disciplines. And, but he uses this language, means of grace, as means of grace. Of course, what he means to is not ends in themselves. We don't just pray and pray harder in order to kind of accumulate a prayer logbook that Jesus will look on and say, well done, you know, or whatever. That's to turn the means into ends in themselves. That is kind of that meritorious problem of merit. And legalism is one step away from that. These are means to an end. And the end, I've already mentioned in one way, can be spoken about in terms of that reward. But Wesley draws upon an early church father. This is part of this ancient storehouse. I'm sure some, if not many of you, will have heard of um, Irenaeus, early church father, who was a, a, a theologian of the Holy Trinity. And he, you know, he would speak about, he would speak about God the Father having two hands, on the one hand, or by these two hands, God the Father saves the world, reaches out and saves the world. On the one hand, he sends Jesus to come amongst us, to live our life, to die our death, and to return home, to make a way for us. On the other hand, he pours out his Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit that draws us into the way, so that we can go 
we can participate in that way that Jesus has trod and know ourselves to be brought home. Father, the grace of God comes through his, is a way of speaking of his outreach to us to gather us up in his divine embrace, not just individually, but it's his people. It's his people to draw us close to his heart so that we can feel his heart beating, we can know his desires, his wants. This is the intimacy with God that we are called to. And here's the thing, you cannot be drawn into that kind of depth of spirit-filled relationship with, with the Father and not be changed from the inside out, not be renewed in his image, in the image of the living God. Grace is not, is, uh, you know, when I, if I ask you to define grace, they'll usually start with the un-words, you know, unconditional unmerited, unthis, un, you know, which it, of course it all is. But what is it that is undeserved, unmerited? It's not just some gift that God takes off a shelf and gives to us, you know, a bit of love here, a bit of goodness there. The gift that we receive is the gift of his own self to us. That is grace. Why? Who are we? that he would take notice of us. But look at the zealousness, the zeal with which he brings us to himself. And the same zeal by which he sends us out, not alone, but with him, as though his arms, those that embrace us, stretch out through us to take hold of others so that when we bear witness to the word and to the spirit, they too, can be drawn in to know who they are into the kingdom of God. People gathered, a people who pray, not just prayers of adoration and petition and intercession, but prayerfulness that expects the presence and the power of God and that people will be changed from the inside out. A people who give not just tithing, but give everything that they have and are to one another and in, and, and in service to the world. A people whose life together reveals a kingdom of hospitality and generosity where just like in Acts 2 and 4, there is no one in need because people do not consider the things that they have to belong to them but to be mere stewards because everything belongs to God and is for our neighbor. Let me tell you, I don't know, whether, maybe you've already conquered this sin, but honestly, um, I think one of the biggest signs and wonders in the communities that, that, that we plant is when they have their addiction to accumulating wealth broken. It takes the power of a God who raises the dead to help them take out their wallet or their homes or whatever it is and share it. 
knowing that there is no scarcity in the kingdom of God. The more that we give, the more that we receive. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. A people who pray, a people who give, people who fast. Because fasting is a weapon of spiritual warfare. I was once talking about Wesley um, and some of these kinds of things to a group, to, a, to the, an annual conference of United Methodists in southern Illinois. Um, they weren't as responsive as you. Um, but uh, afterwards, uh, after I'd finished, uh, there was a time of question and answer. And one of, the, one of the people there asked me a question. They said, what do you think John Wesley would be most rolling around in his grave about today? You know, one of those hot potato things. I, it, it doesn't matter what I say now, it's going to go badly. Uh, I, I, you know, I felt like the, some of those early Methodist preachers that used to say when they, they stood up to preach, they felt like they were sort of putting their heads above the parapet to be shot. You know, it was, it was kind of like that. And then I felt the Spirit just gave me the word. It said, uh, it reminded me of something that Wesley himself had said. Wesley, Wesley warned the people called Methodists later in his life because he saw, he saw that they had been recipients of the goodness of God and he saw that they had started just to accumulate it all for themselves individually. He saw them failing to give. He saw that the sign of it was a failure to fast. Failure to be a people who fast was a sign of a people who hadn't really solved the problem of sin and greed and selfishness. They didn't want me to expound on that anymore. So, well, some did afterwards, but um, and it, no doubt, it's, if you were to come to Asbury Theological Seminary where where I teach. There's a statue of Wesley, um, and, and on the statue, there's a, something that he said again very, quite late in London, not too long before he died. He said, I never fear that the people called Methodists will cease to exist. It's almost incomprehensible to him. You know, the, the movement is growing so rapidly. He says, I, I, I never fear that the people called Methodists will cease to exist, but that they may continue to exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power thereof. And this they will surely be unless they hold fast to the doctrine and the discipline and the, and the spirit with which they first set out. I'll leave it at that. And we are scattered as those same people who know prayer to be the breath of life. That's how Wesley puts it. Spiritual respiration, knowing the, knowing, the, knowing the intimacy and the provision of our God moment by moment, day by day in his guidance. Fasting as freedom whenever we feel. And uh, in a room this big, I think I'm on safe ground to say that although sin may not reign in our lives, it does remain...
And one of the ways that Wesley was insistent that we could wage war over our addictions was to fast and pray and cast out that demon. Was to stare temptation in the face and say, you will not have my life. I was made for more than this. We were made for more than this. And we have a God who raises the dead, so. And a Jesus who is an exorcist, so get out of here. Quit. Third, sharing fellowship as spiritual friends. Jesus spent most of his time in fellowship with others when he wasn't casting out demons, that is. He spent time with crowds. He spent time with 12, of course, whom he he chose out of those crowds. And he spent time, though, I want to pick on another group, the three, Peter, James, and John. He had an inner circle within the inner circle, within the crowds, you know. Peter, James, and John, you remember, because you, you all were excellent students of the Scripture. You know how in the Gospels Jesus would take the th- those three apart, even from the twelve, at key moments in his life, uh, and, and, and in his revelation of who he is. Remember how he took them to the house of Jairus. He made the others stay outside, and he went inside and took Peter, James, and John with him. And, and you, okay, I'm, this is going to be a bit of an exercise of the imagination, okay? So I, I, I'm going to sort of read between the lines here, but he's got Peter, James, and John in the room, and, and there's, there's this, this, this dead girl, right, lying there, and, and he walks over to them, and they're getting nervous. You know, their rabbi, their, their holy man is walking over to this person. I mean, there's everything, he looks like he's going to touch her. There's everything wrong about this, right? This person is dead. Worse, a dead girl. But Jesus leans over, takes her by the hand, and breathes. And with every word, of course, his breath comes over her face, little girl around. There she is, alive. And then Jesus turns to Peter, James, and John and says, Right, job done, let's go. Uh, I think it may may be more than that. Doesn't he say to Peter, James, and John, you know, watch and learn? This is our mission bringing life to the dead. You will do even greater things than this. And the second time he takes Peter, James, and John, because he's going up a mountain, right? And he makes the others stay behind, and he goes up, and as he's praying, he starts to, to glow. You know, he's radiating with the presence of the Father, the power of the Spirit. And Peter, James, and, and, and John look at this, and they're, they're amazed. They're, they're, but of course, you know, they're kind of entrepreneurial, and they're like, you know, wow, this is, this is great. Let's set up some tents so we can get the crowds through, you know. <laughs> I don't know if that's what they were really talking about. but um, We'll programmatize it, you know. It's, it's what the contemporary church might do. Jesus said, no, 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 no. This, this 
watch and learn. This is what it's like to have intimacy with the Father. Watch and learn because this is going to be yours. This is yours. It will be yours when the Spirit comes. And then the last time he has them, he has them kind of up the mount again, but this time they don't follow Jesus in glory. They see him in agony, right? In the garden, wrestling with the future and praying, you know, thy will be done. Um, Coming to that prayer. And why does he take Peter, James, and John there? Maybe it's, maybe it's uh, for their sake. They too are going to need to watch and learn how to wrestle with temptation, how to overcome it, how to surrender into the Lord's hands even when it seems impossible or tough. They're going to follow him. And they do have to do that, right? Um, maybe it's also too because Jesus wants his friends there. He doesn't, he, even he doesn't want to be alone in the garden wrestling to make that tough decision to do what everything in his heart cries out that he doesn't really want to do, humanly speaking. No wonder he gets so annoyed when he finds them asleep. You know, it's not just because they're missing the object lesson. It's like, you're supposed to be my friends. Praying for me, watch and pray, <laughs> you know. So here we have a picture of Jesus with Peter, James, and John in this in the intimacy of this really small group of people. Jesus shares, he imparts his mission to them of raising the dead, bringing new life and healing. He he shares with them his mountaintop experiences and the depths of his agony. He invites them into a posture of deep spiritual friendship. I no longer call you servants, but friends. Brothers and sisters, we are not above our master, right? John Wesley, for John Wesley, this principle of spiritual friendship lay at the absolute heart of Christian community. Lest they just become a rope of sand. He put them into uh, these tiny little groups called bands. Actually from the German Bund, you know, uh, fellow, union, fellowship. And uh, so that they, where two or three are gathered, might find Jesus in their midst. So they might gather around his feet and receive his spirit and be bound to one another so that they might share the things that the Lord was placing on their hearts with one another, so they might share their mountaintop experiences with one another, and so that they might share their agonies of what it means to remain faithful when it's tough with one another. To share their lives deeply, even all the way down 
these little groups were really the catalyst of that discipleship movement. I hope you have your Peter, James, and John. Or I hope you are one of those in a group. <laughs> you have that kind of spiritual friendship where you can know and be known. Because the beauty of it is, of course, in the kingdom of God, the beauty of fellowship, of, com of community, is koinonia. I think that's how you say it. I want to say koinonia, but, you know, um, is the closer we draw to one another, the closer we draw to the Lord. And the, cl the more closely we are bound to the Lord, the more closely we are bound to one another. Because community is a deeply spiritual reality. Not just a kind of social experiment, even of the kingdom kind. It is only of the kingdom kind when the king is among us. And he is the one who's changing our hearts and lives from the inside out personally and together and then in our witness in the world. There is no such thing as solitary Christianity, Wesley, Wesley said. You cannot be a Christian on your own. You just cannot. You cannot be holy on your own. We have to share that kind of fellowship, that kind of... You know what? Sometimes I've wondered whether one of the greatest gifts that we, we could give to the world um, is, is, of course, you know, I, I, I think you know this. I've, I heard Brother Blair talk about this. This great gift of real community that is so lacking. And the world is so fragmented. There's a deep longing for real community in the world. It, the spirit is already working in the world. You know, there is no one who, uh, John's gospel starts that way, right? The light that enlightens everyone who comes into the world. Just Creating, as St. Augustine would say, that restlessness for more of God and more of his people. There's a hunger. And the more that the world is fragmented and tribalized, the greater that hunger for authentic, Christ authentic community will become. And the only way they will find it is among the people of Jesus. The only way. The greatest gift in some ways we have to give to the world is friendship. You know there's a massive crisis of friendship in the world. Any number of, of uh, social researchers in, in recent years have done, done surveys, you know. And of course, what do social researchers want to know? What does the world want? The world wants to know how to be happy. They want to know how to be happy. And so we'll do some social research. What, 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 how did the happiest people in the world get to be happy? So they, they survey people on the street and, 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 the, and the surveys. The one thing, there's many factors that seem to contribute, and I just mean secular people, contribute to their happiness. But, but, but the one thing that rises above everything else is having deep friendship. It's what makes you happy. So, of course, these good, uh, these good social scientists, they'll go out again with another survey. Let's find out how many people have got those kinds of friends. 
And uh, so they do their research. And do you know what they find? Have a guess. Barely any. Barely any. Casual acquaintances. Despite having a thousand friends on Facebook, ugh, what a way to pervert the idea of friendship. You know, here, befriend my profile, the image I create for myself online. I don't people actually want to know the real me all the way down. But here's friendship with God and with one another. It is being known all the way down, but not just known, known and loved. It's the love that wins the world. It's the love that's unstoppable. Let me finish up by saying the the last mark um, of authentic community is for for those Wesleyan communities was engaging mission um, witness in in everyday life, in their everyday lives. Now, one of the embarrassing things for a missiologist, like so students come to places like Asbury and take classes from me because they want to know the next best, greatest technique to plant and grow a church so they can make a living, right? I'm probably being unfair, but not much, Um, (laughs) you know? They want a strategy, right? A program. And I have to start by saying, you know, the funny thing is that when we look at the life of Jesus, it's really hard to figure out what kind of strategy he had at all. He certainly didn't seem to have a mission strategy. Except, well, maybe, of course, he turns his face to Jerusalem and, you know, there's that part of it. But, But apart from that, it seems to be basically that he changes the life of everybody he meets along the way. That's his strategy. Anybody he meets, their lives get changed, you know. Those who would come to him. I just not a bad strategy. Uh, Jesus, he uh, says in John's gospel, doesn't he, you know, that he only does what he sees the Father doing. He only says what he hears the Father saying. I've often wondered what he saw and heard. Maybe it's something like this, you know, he's walking down the street and he sees a leper. Um, But he doesn't just see a leper. What he sees is a sick man and right there by the sick man he sees the hand of the Father stretched out to heal. So what does Jesus do? I only do what I see the Father doing. He walks over to the leper and does what he sees. Be healed. Receive your sight. Get out of get out of this person.
you have no right. Your sins are forgiven. Stand up and walk. Go and sin no more. He has vision. He doesn't just see people and things. What he sees is a God-bathed world because all the world already belongs to the Father, not just our little bit. They may not know it. They may not yet bow the knee. They may just be in rebellion as opposed to submission. But he is already at work. The Father was ahead of Jesus. Jesus follows the Father. And we follow Jesus as he follows the Father. And leads us into his mission. And so we too don't depend on great strategies. Have you ever read the book of Acts? The Spirit says, go there. Stop. Go up there. You know? If you're going to follow the mission of God, the most important thing is that you learn to see what he is up to and hear his voice, his guidance, moment by moment, because we have no idea exactly. At least this is my experience. I, I, you know, what he's going to do next, the only thing I know is it's going to be awesome. That's the only thing I know. And you know, I, I don't know whether it's true for you, but in my experience, you know, I live in a neighborhood. It would be nice to live on this ranch. Um, but I live in a neighborhood surrounded by non-Christian people who curse and swear and drink and, you know, um, and have to be witness to, so, to, to something different. My home a witness to something different. I think of Clyde, who lives, you know, he, he came across the road the other day to tell me off. He said, I saw you went away. We'd been back to England. He said, I saw you'd been away. He said, don't you ever do that again. I'm like, what, go away? <laughs> no, go away and don't tell me. Because I, like I like to look after my neighbors, you know, he said. And I said, that's great. I don't mind him looking after my house. I mean, he has a gun, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to have one, but, you know, well, <laughs> what can you do? <laughs> um, but I've, I've, I'm already in a witnessing relationship with Clyde. I've already prayed for him. I'm, I'm already, I, 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 I pray for him when he's, his, his mother died. I've, I've only been there 18 months when his mother died, but I'm, and I'm not in, I'm, I'm in no rush. But I tell you, I'm, if there's one thing that I have that burning zeal for, it's to put him under the water and lift him out and see him filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I believe it's going to happen because I don't think that Jesus is guiding my steps in this and he's not going to finish what he started. You, you know what I'm talking about, the whole, the impulses of the Spirit that tell you, you know, that speak to you and say, do this, say that, you know. And you've got two options. You either are obedient or you quench the Spirit. That's where the rubber hits the road for us as individuals in the community. We hang on the presence and the movements um, of Jesus, moment by moment and day by day. What one 
medieval writer that I, I like to read said, it's the sacrament of the present moment. Those impulses of the spirit are a way that Jesus is saying, come on, we're going to do something here. Do you want to see the kingdom come in this moment with this person, with these people? Come on, I'm opening a door. Join me. We do that individually, we do that together, and we, we have stories to tell of his amazing goodness and grace. What an adventure. So let me conclude. At its best, early Methodism was an organic movement. Communities of contagious holiness, a people on mission with God, disciples of Jesus, both gathered and scattered, spreading the gospel around the world. Wesleyan community seeking growth by practicing the presence of God in all things, using those disciplines to stay connected to his grace, his love, his power, sharing fellowship by investing in spiritual friendship and engaging mission by living as everyday witnesses. One of the neat things that Wesley says in that sermon that I started with when he said, you know, the grand stumbling block is the lives of Christians were not people, not Christians whose lives look like that. Not communities that, whose lives look like that. Those Christians, those communities, he says, is an argument that the world will find hard to resist. <laughs> not an argument simply made by words, but an argument that is the embodiment of the presence and the power of God who is on a mission and has a destination and he's going to arrive there. Even, he says, even this way, the Muslims will come to faith in Jesus. And you know, right, that, that even if we don't do it, Jesus himself will just show up and, and win those Muslims. Muslims all around the world are, are having dreams of Jesus himself coming, and just coming to faith because the church has failed But it really doesn't matter what our Muslims are, whether they're those rabid atheists or liberal Democrats or, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever the principalities and powers of the world might look like. Here's the truth. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.